Well, it is good to be here, and uh, perhaps you're saying, my goodness, uh, 37 years he's been doing this, and he's been married almost 45 years. This guy is just worn out. <laughs> and uh, uh, there are days we all feel worn out. There's days in early ministry I think I was felt more worn out, however, than I do now. And it's a, uh, by God's grace uh, that I still get to do this, you know, connect with people, preach the Word of God, and help minister with churches. Uh, I'm not arrogant enough to think I, I'm uh, here so much for churches, it's with churches. And you guys have had so many different interims coming in, who's preaching, who isn't preaching. Uh, you thought you had the next long-term pastor just recently. If you're a guest here today or you're newer the last few weeks, uh, it's recent history. You may feel like it's ancient history, but it's recent history. Uh, you're all set up for the next long-term guy. I mean, you've been blessed to have two wonderful men uh, complimenting each other on staff with a lead pastor and an executive pastor who is great with the relationships and organization, and then the next guy's not here. Uh, and you probably still miss the guys that were here. I hope you do. I mean, you only grieve things that were valuable. You don't grieve the loss of things that weren't. So if you aren't grieving the loss of what you had, then uh, you probably weren't rightly connected because uh, it was precious. And it's really tough to get through that stuff. Uh, one of the things I mentioned with the, uh, with the elders that I've met with and some of the others, I think I mentioned this a uh, couple of the meetings yesterday, one of the advantages of having an interim come in, that is I'll be here for a while, not just a couple weeks, uh, but not forever, is I become the shock absorber. That is, uh, what you had, you're not going to have again. Nobody can fill the, the shoes of the men that were here. Uh, good years, but they're not going to come back. And so whatever shock has to happen, things are a little different. The face you're seeing every week is a little bit different. Uh, the advantage for, for you is that I take the shock, the shock absorber, and then uh, at such time as the Lord opens the door for the next long-term person, it's like, oh, okay, it'll be all right. It'll be different, but it'll be okay. But it'll be okay. Uh, Brenda and I have uh, uh, been dealing with some of our own shocks, if you will. I don't know if I'd call it shock, but maybe it's too strong. But part of what we do is I go to a church like this one, and I don't know if I'm going to be there eight months, ten months. We are te all we are just ten months in northwest Iowa, 15 minutes from the Minnesota border and about an hour uh, east of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I had never lived in rural America. I had just driven through it. And what a culture shock. It's like people coming into the city, like if, if you've uh, come into Evanston or Chicagoland and you had never lived in a big city, it was like, this is culture shock. It was culture shock the other way, because we lived 20 years in urban Chicago. Um, but then I was uh, two years and three months on Long Island, New York. So you don't know when the next guy's going to come. That's up to God. You just wait on God. But then Brenda and I, we finish, and it's like, now what do we do? We can't go to our home because we have a tenant in our home because I can't pay a mortgage in a house. It'd be somewhere else. So right now we're living with a friend in Boone, North Carolina, up in the mountains in two of his empty bedrooms with our boxes all stacked up and the wardrobe box with the clothes and stuff in it in one room and things in the basement and then are saying, can I find shoes to bring to Evanston? Because uh, I've just been wearing sandals for six weeks. And uh, however, if I stick around, you get to know me, I probably would wear the sandals. It's just you don't do that when it's your first Sunday here. So uh, 
However, you don't really need to know a whole lot more about me, except perhaps that I don't like hard butter. Now, some of you, maybe it's not a big deal, but I'll tell you, if you're the guy we're staying with in his house, he keeps his butter in the refrigerator. I don't know why he does, but he does, and it's not our house, it's his house, so we're staying there, so I don't take it out unless I'm going to use it. So the toast is in the toaster, and then I go, oh, i got to get the butter. And I grab the butter, and it's hard. And I got hot toast, and I got cold butter, and I don't like hard butter because i got to wait for it to melt. Now, I know it's going to melt, but I like I, I got things on my brain and things I want to do. By the time it melts, now the toast is cold. I don't like hard butter. Thinking about hard butter means you've got to wait for something. Now, you, you, you know something's going to happen. I mean, the butter will melt. It's not like it's useless butter. But you've got to wait for it. And so many things in life we've got to wait for. And Brenda and I, as I said, between spots, we don't even know then how soon. Like between Long Island, New York, and, uh, well, when I left Samaritan's Purse, I worked for Samaritan's Purse for about three and a half years. When we left Samaritan's Purse, I had, uh, I didn't know how long I'd go without a job. Am I going to go back to a local church? What am I going to do? So we had about uh, three and a half months without a job. And, uh, and God said, write a book. So actually, that's, I wrote half the book in those three and a half months. But I didn't know when I was going to work again. And when we went from Long Island to, New York, uh, from, uh, Long Island to uh, Northwest Iowa, uh, we had one month off, and we moved during that month. We never even went back to North Carolina. And now I've been off for like six, seven weeks, and it's like, what's next? And it's like hard butter. I'm just waiting. I don't like this hard butter. I don't like this waiting. I, I want to know what's going on. Maybe that's not a problem for you, but it's a problem for me. And I'll probably never like hard butter, but I keep learning good biblical lessons because of it. And I think the reason we have the Gospel of John, chapter 21, is because the disciples needed a lesson in hard butter. So if you've got your Bible, uh, the text is going to pop up behind me as well, but if you've got your Bible, turn to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. And uh, the verse simply starts out by saying, after these things, after this. Well, after what? I mean, what we get in John chapter 21 is unique. I'm so glad John gave us this passage uh, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us this kind of story. Only John gives us this insight. And the disciples are learning to wait. And they're learning how valuable it is to wait. Because hard butter can be really good if something good's going to come out of it. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. I'll just pause there for a second. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's just that John is writing at the end of the first century, and he's writing to an audience that is not just Jewish. And in 20 AD, uh, Emperor Tiberius built a big city on the eastern or western western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, uh, and they wanted to rename the the sea after him. Well, it didn't last. Today it's called still the Sea of Galilee, but John's writing to a broader audience, so he calls it the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Uh, there's Simon Peter, uh, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, the John who writes this book, and two others of his disciples were there. So seven of the disciples were gathered, not all of them, but a, but a group of the disciples, and Jesus reveals himself, well, after, after what? He'd already revealed himself. 
In fact, the previous chapter is where Jesus dies, he's buried, now the resurrection from the dead. Mary Magdalene sees him. And in chapter 20 and verse 19, it says that same evening, that is Easter Sunday morning on the first day of the week, Jesus shows up in their midst, in their room, and says, see my scar, see the scar on my side, uh, it's me. And, and, and he lets them know in that setting that's expanded upon in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that see Jesus, and then they meet in the room. It's expanded. Jesus right then says, see, I'm resurrected, and what I told you guys about, my disciples, uh, that we're going to go into all the world and share the Gospel, that's going to happen now because I'm resurrected, I'm back from the dead. Uh, so that appearance had already happened. And, and it tells us uh, Thomas wasn't there. And also in chapter 20 and verse 26, it was eight days later, uh, Jesus shows up to the group again. Uh, now he's showing up on this shoreline. And it tells us, and we'll see this later in the text, in verse 14, this was the thir third time Jesus showed up to the group. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us at one time he showed up to 500 people at once. Uh, he showed up independently to uh, uh, the Apostle James, to Peter again, but to the group three times. And after these commissionings, that is, I mean, they'd already heard Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the God. They'd already heard that. But, okay, let's go. Jesus, remember, we left our fishing nets. You said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We, we've left our fishing nets. We're ready to go. You're back from the dead. He shows up that first night. Can you imagine the first night? Boy, Jesus is back. It's going to start. No, it's not going to start. Eight days later, he shows up. These independent appearances. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that, it, or maybe it was verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, it says 40 days Jesus showed up, then he wasn't there. Then he showed up, then he wasn't there. And they're waiting. Then even after the ascension, in Acts chapter 1, they had to wait 10 more days to Pentecost before they got their next assignment. What's next? 10 more days. They're learning to wait. I don't get the impression they like it, but they're learning to wait. The group is there, and Simon Peter says to them in verse 3, well, I'm going fishing. I mean, you got to do something, right? I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. you, you, you got to do something. <laughs> What's next, Jesus? We're ready. And I want to know. And I want to know how it's going to turn out. I want to know if it was like when you sent us out two by two and some of the people said, forget these folks. And, and the disciples were mocked, and so they'd walk out of town and they'd shake the dust off the sandals of their feet. It was symbolic of saying, we were here, you didn't listen, enough's enough. Shake the dust off your feet. Is it going to be like that? Or if you're resurrected from the dead, I'm like, is everybody going to get saved? How's it going to work out? What's the outcome going to be? I don't know, but you got all this anxious energy. you got to do something. I'll tell you, the last six weeks, because I didn't know where we were going to go next. I, I, years ago, I knew there was a church here, but it, I wasn't, you know, it's not in the forefront of your brain. Uh, I was on the ordination council, actually, for one of your former pastors years ago, Martin McCorkle. And I was the chairman of the ministerial in uh, Chicagoland, and that's why I ended up on his ordination council. And it was like, oh, I think I remember that church. 
so but what was I doing in this in-between time? I was not enjoying the hard butter. And I got to tell you, I had some anxiety. I mean, there's two kinds of waiting. I mean, there's the kind of waiting that says, well, I hope so, maybe. You know, it's the kind of waiting that says, what's the Northwestern football team? What are the Wildcats going to do this year? Maybe it'll be good to hear. Uh, maybe tomorrow will be sunny. There's that kind of waiting. But, you know, for believers, the other kind of waiting is there's a certainty. You, you kind of know something good's going to happen. Maybe you know the specific end because Jesus is in it. It just hasn't happened yet. You don't know how. You don't know when. But you got to wait. You got to wait. Uh, my mom, uh, three of our four parents, went to be with the Lord a long, long time ago. My uh, mother... Uh, passed away just this last June 28th, uh, and uh, she'd wanted to be with Jesus over a decade since my dad had gone home, and her dementia was pretty bad anyway, and it was really a celebration. What a blessing. Um, but when she was moved into hospice, uh, we flew it back into town to be with my siblings and my mom, and we were certain she was going to die. We were certain she was going to be with Jesus. But we didn't know when. Some of you have been in that position. You're just kind of waiting it out. And the waits, I mean, those, that week or so was, was precious, but it was exhausting. And we're just saying, Jesus, I mean, we'd hold hands. My, my mom's a believer. My siblings were holding hands. Jesus, just take her home. But we're waiting. Hard butter. Hard butter. I mean, the good thing was we, uh, we got to hold hands. We got to pray and talk with one another. And, and I sang to mom. My two siblings should have because they both are good singers, and I'm not, but I was the one who sang to mom. And uh, I sang uh, uh, parts of, well, I looked up all the words, but I sang parts of Chris, Rice, Chris Rice's uh, 2003 song simply called An Untitled Hymn. Uh, two of the stanzas say, Now your burden's lifted and carried far away, and precious blood has washed away all stain. So sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, and live. And the reason this song really grabbed me was uh, when I'd lean over mom and kiss her on the forehead and uh, it says, and with your final heartbeat, you kiss the world goodbye. And go in peace and laugh on glory's side and fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus and live. And uh, I learned the last couple of days, Jeff, uh, your mom went home to Jesus in April. Why did she have to struggle, in your case, with uh, Jeff with Alzheimer's? God, this is hard butter. God, just take her home. Me and my siblings said because I was singing that she would probably go quicker. Hard butter. But, it's just, but you don't know when. Pick the story up in verse 4. They're fishing, right? Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Well, the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Well, because they're out fishing, he's on the shore. And they never knew when he was going to pop in or out, remember, right? Forty days in and out. So they had no reason to think it would be Jesus. And, but he tells them, children, do you have any fish? And they said, well, no. So he says, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and they weren't even to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and we'll find out uh, later in the text, this is John who's writing this, the Apostle John. 
The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter heard it was the Lord. So he puts his outer garment on. He dives in and he swims to shore. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net of fish for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. Why'd they have to go fishing? Why did Jesus wait and stand on the shore? Why didn't he just walk on the sea in the middle of the night like he'd done before? I don't know. Maybe something good comes out of hard butter. I mean, they knew they weren't going to catch souls, human beings, without Jesus. Maybe they needed to know they couldn't even catch fish without Jesus. Actually, it was just within the last two weeks, I decided what I was going to preach on. I had no idea what I should preach on. All my sermons and stuff were in boxes and files, and I, you know, and I don't like reworking things much anyway. And uh, so I'm standing in our friend Mark's kitchen with my hard butter, <laughs> being frustrated, the coffee's perking, and I'm, and I'm going, ah, oh, hard butter. Jesus could have worked this whole thing out sooner. I could have known just like I did when we left Long Island that we're going to Iowa. What's with these breaks? Why didn't Jesus show up sooner? Why didn't he show up? And I'm thinking, they're thinking, you know what? I'm only awake today because of Jesus. And it dawned on me that I wasn't waiting for IPM, Interim Pastor Ministries, for an assignment. I wasn't waiting for a church somewhere, somehow in the United States, to contact them that would contact me and find out I was available and not at another. No, no, no. I was waiting on Jesus. He's the master of time and circumstances and arrangements and settings. And some of, some of them are soft butter. Some are you just go, praise God. And other ones are, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you love me. I know you got a plan. And then you realize, I can't do a lick of anything without the God of the universe who created people and life and oxygen and, and, and uh, I'm not floating around. Gravity's holding me on the planet. There's a sovereign God and just, just maybe some of the things that are so important to me are not nearly as important to Jesus. That is, maybe he's got some lessons for me to learn in the waiting. And I'm thinking in this story, uh, they needed to be reminded that the resurrected Christ that wasn't with them all the time. Now, at this point, you know, he's physically not with them like he had been for over three years. They're starting to learn to walk by faith and not just by sight because Jesus was never very far away. Not for a moment will I leave you. We, we sang that song. In fact, I had never heard that song, that uh, never let you go, never let you go. How cool, what a good song. I'd never heard that. He'd never let him go. He could have come in the middle of the night. He could have just showed up. You guys can't even catch fish without him. You just think you can because you're fishermen. And that's where we really get arrogant, isn't it? The stuff we're good at, we just go off as if we got it all under control. How are they going to catch lives and change souls if they're not utterly dependent on the presence of a holy God for every breath they take? And I think it's just way more important to Jesus to just hang with us and let the butter melt than it is to hurry up and even do a miracle, although obviously he does one. Verse 9, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish on it and bread. Well, where'd those fish come from? How'd the fire get started? Bread? 
temple. I, I, I think Jesus must have produced that. And, and Jesus says, oh, bring me some of the fish you've caught in verse 11. So Simon went aboard, helped haul the net ashore, was full of large fish, 153 of them. Uh, you know, like guys who tell the fish stories, they go, well, it was this big when it was this big. So John didn't want a fish story. He says, we count it. We count it. No cheating here. And although there were so many fish, the net wasn't even torn. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Breakfast? Aren't there things to do? We got to wait? You know, one of the lessons for, for hard butter is maybe Jesus just wants to hang with me for a few weeks before I'm in another assignment. Maybe what's more precious about you with him is that you are with him. Maybe while you and I are stressing over the outcomes and and dealing with, with the changes and the pressure, maybe what's more important to Jesus is let's just have breakfast. I mean, nothing's even recorded here about what they said. What kind of conversation's going on? I don't know. Most of the conversations that I have, especially with people I love and like when we're hanging, you know, I could get home, I could be out with my friends. And uh, uh, in fact, last week I was out uh, golfing with uh, my friend Dick Bergen down in North Carolina. I came in and Brenda says, so how'd it go? And so, so what did you talk about? Now, I, 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 we had fun. What did we talk about? I don't have a clue what we talked about. We we're just golfing. We we're just having breakfast. That's a, Jesus, Jesus is saying, let's just have a love relationship, a reciprocal love. Let, let's share with one another. In fact, it tells us in verse 12, none of them dared ask, who are you? Now, the reason John puts that in here is, be, is because he's writing this for this wider audience, and he wants to get one more lick in at the end of the book after he's talked about miracles and got all the sightings and who Jesus was. No, the disciples knew. Because remember, early in the ministry journey, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes up, and Jesus says, hush, be still, and the storms are calmed, and they say, and they say, who is this? They're in the boat with him. Who is this anyway? Even the waves and the wind obey him. And it's, they're saying, nobody asked who he is. They didn't have to ask. They knew, the text says. They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took bread, gave it to him, so with the fish. In other words, this is taking a while. This is the third time that Jesus was manifested, revealed to his disciples after he was raised. It's taken a while. And so you hit verse 15, and when they had finished breakfast... Let's just share with one another. Let's have breakfast. And, and, and now that we've had breakfast, Peter, he puts his, I can just see him putting his arm around Peter's big fisherman's shoulders and just kind of walk. Peter, come on. Let's talk. Starts walking with Peter. And apparently, uh, based on uh, verse 20, John's following him. I mean, that's how we know the, about the conversation. John's eavesdropping. Where's Jesus going with Peter. I thought we were just kind of this reciprocal love thing going on. What's going on? Where's he going with Peter? And he's listening to the story. And Jesus says uh, to Simon in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these what? Is he saying, Peter, are you still comparing your love? I mean, remember just before Jesus went to the cross, it was during the Last Supper, and he says what's going to happen to him. And Peter says, oh, Lord, I would, I'm going to get a sword. I would die for you. In other words, I love you more than these. I am so committed. And that's when Jesus says, yeah, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Maybe there's an echo of that. You still think you love me more than these guys? Maybe. Uh, maybe 
as we look in the text, maybe he's also saying, you think you just want to keep waiting for the butter to melt indefinitely, or are you still on board? Peter, are you going to call the shots and ask me to bless the shots, your time, your schedule, your place? Or are you going to let it be, let me be Lord? Me call the time, the schedule, the place. Do you love me enough to not say I'm in charge of the fishing, the where and the how? And if I say wait, you'll wait. And if I say go, you'll go. And if I say it's going to be hard, you say, not my will, but yours be done. Are you going to do that, Peter? I think that's where he's leaning into. Because as you know, and I don't have to go through the details of the text here, you know, three times he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Uh, and, uh, And... Some people make a big deal out of the fact that two times the word love is agape, uh, the Greek word agape, love. One times it's phileo, which is friendship, love. Uh, Jesus isn't speaking Greek. This is written in Greek. John's doing the writing because he's listening to the story. And Jesus is speaking Aramaic, a dialect of Hebrew, and, and you don't have all these variations of words for love. The reason John writes using two different words is he's saying, in the conversation, Jesus was digging deep into this love thing and didn't want to miss the reality. Peter, is it, do you love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Is it, are you all in, all of you, surrendered to me completely? Is that really what this love is about? Because, Peter, the time's going to come when you aren't going to call any of the shots. It's going to be utterly out of your control, and you're going to be crying with anxiety and tears to get an answer, and it's not going to be coming. Now, how do we know that? Because in verse 18, he says, truly, truly, Jesus says, this is going to happen. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Ah, but you're going to get old. And you're going to stretch out your hands. And someone's going to dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And Paul adds parent, or John adds parenthetically to when he writes this. He said this to show about what kind of death he would glorify God. Now, the reason John could say that is by the time he wrote this, it had happened. And John knew exactly. And Peter pretty much got it too. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Peter, you did that three and a half years ago. I said, follow me and and I'll make you fishers of men. And you said, okay. You still on board? You going to stay on board when you screw up and deny me three times? I still love you. It hasn't changed. Peter, Peter I, 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 I can't love you more, and I won't love you less. And I'm just asking for reciprocal love. And in that context, Peter, the waiting simply means I want to be so vitally connected with you in trust that when you start fulfilling the purposes I have for you, you won't get an ego big head over it. You'll know it's me in you. It's me with you. I'm empowering you. And that I love you enough to walk with you on this entire journey, the high, the low, the bad, the frustrating, and the celebrations. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back at him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? That's John, the youngest of the disciples. And Peter says to him, he looks back at eavesdropping John, who's following him, right? He looks back, Lord, what about this guy? Jesus says, well, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You, you deal with, you follow me. And John adds this little saying, so the saying spread among the brethren 
that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus didn't say to him he wouldn't die. He simply said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then this uh, wrap-up of the chapter. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that even the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. Now, I think there's a subtle lesson that is really easy to miss in these last few verses. Because it seems the focal character is Peter. I mean, it's the group of the disciples. Uh, For the reader who's been reading through the Gospel of John, Uh, it's just reinforcement that Jesus is real. He rose from the dead. He's eating fish and bread. He's still doing miracles. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, And he's with you. But John's writing this stuff. And here, in utter humility, John doesn't even use his name. Doesn't even use his own name. And there is a task to be done, and Jesus is entrusting the task to these human beings. I I, I hope you realize whatever tasks, whatever relationships that he's entrusted to you, we ought to have just an incredible awe and humility that God would entrust anything to us. But you are so valuable that he has a purpose. You you say, "I'll, I'll follow, and God, you fill in the blanks. I'll just say, yes, thy will be done, and then trust God to fill in the blanks. But the basis for that to work is a love relationship. And John is so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus Christ that he doesn't even use his own name. I'm I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. You get that? Jesus loves even me. Even me. And some of us, probably some of you here, might still be waiting on some hard butter because uh, Jesus wants you to know how much you're loved. Not for what you can do, not for what you can provide, just because he kind of wants to hang with you. He shed his blood for your sins so that you could be connected and have a relationship with him. And, and, and he's just, in fact, that's why he talks about this whole love thing with Peter. There had to be more conversation than this. But he records the love part. And he is in awe that he can just keep learning. I could go on and on. What a beautiful name it is that we sang this morning. I was kind of teared up a little during that song. Jesus loves me. The little childhood ditty, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. He is weak, but we're str- we are weak, but he is strong. Would you just renew that love relationship with you? Would it be reciprocal? We love because you first loved us. You're here today because Jesus loves you. And to be able to just bask in that. The, the day a love relationship gets casual to you or to me, where it's just routine, or you just go through hard butter, soft butter, and you just tough it out and you plow on, even if it's doing good stuff for God. God's going to bring something hard enough into your life to say, can we just love each other here? Don't ever get over 
the wonder that the maker, creator of the universe, the living God, who didn't need people at all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were perfectly fine without us, said, I'm willing to die for your sins and your place so we could have a love relationship. And Jesus loves even me. And he loves even you. And John says there is so much more that can be written. It's inexhaustible what can be written. I didn't get saved till uh, age 20. And uh, looking back, how many years have I said, man, God, why didn't I get saved when I was five? I don't know. But in my case, I was 20. It's up to Jesus. And sometimes I feel like maybe for me, the wait was so, uh, so I would just keep saying, I got to work harder to find out more about Jesus because I missed out those first 20 years. I don't know. But, uh, but contemporary Christian music was just creeping in uh, to churches at that time. So I still have a bunch of hymns in my head. In 1887, Eliza Hewitt wrote, More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More about Jesus in his word. Holding communion with my Lord. Hearing his voice in every line. Making each faithful saying mine. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we are in awe of a deliberate love for we who are born with a sin nature, we who want to control our own destinies, Uh, We who are so utterly impatient for God to give us an answer. Uh, We who uh, quietly, internally churn up even in anger against you, Lord, when stuff's happening that we don't like and we can't figure out and evil runs apparently rampant. So afresh this morning, we confess our ignorance, our arrogance, and we humbly come to the cross and say, Jesus, you love me anyway. And there's always more. So Lord, show us more of who you are and let us enjoy a surrendered love relationship with you. Amen.